So being the fourth Sunday of Advent, the theme is love. And uh, this is a unusual year in that, well, it happens, about every, it happens every seven years, that uh, we have another full week before we come to Christmas Day. The 25th this year lands uh, on a Sunday, as does New Year's. And uh, so usually when we finish the fourth Sunday of Advent, there's only a few days and then we have you know, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, this year we have a full, full week. So if you have that Christmas shopping you need to get done, uh, you've got a full week to get it done as before uh, Christmas Day rolls around or Christmas Eve. And I don't know about you, but I still have some Christmas shopping left to do. And I'm down to those folks that are kind of difficult to shop for. You know, the ones that you don't really know. It's hard to find a gift for them. Do you ever have, do you have people in your life that are a bit hard to shop for? It's hard to find that thing for them. Uh, my dad used to be, for me, uh, a hard guy to shop for, not because he was picky, but because he pretty much had everything he needed. Uh, he didn't really need anything, uh, but I know that he wanted, he wanted us to, to get him something because that was an indicator to him that we had thought about him. And so uh, it was difficult, man, when I was, especially when I was younger and I had a very limited budget. I would get my dad some very strange gifts, you know, just because I couldn't really find stuff that was within the budget. And he would, and these are some examples uh, of kind of, not stuff that I got him, but of kind of strange gifts. My dad, the one thing he always wanted, uh, he always say he wished he, he wanted a sailboat. And uh, one year I got him a 40-foot sailboat for Christmas. It was about that big and had 40 little plastic feet that were stuck to the bottom of it. And that was his 40-foot sailboat. That's the kind of stuff I used to get my dad because I couldn't find stuff that he really needed or that he, he really wanted because, like I said, he had everything. And uh, kind of in the same way, you know, spiritually speaking, you know, God, God is hard to shop for. God's, God is sometimes, I think we want to please God. We want to give something to God, uh, often give of ourselves or give of a sense a sense of service or something like that. But it's, it's hard to get that right. If you look throughout the Bible, it's kind of one of these themes within the Bible. People wanting to do something for God and very often finding themselves in a place where they were actually in a bit of opposition to God because they kind of presumed something of God. Uh, some quick examples off the top of my head. Uh, there's a Example of the sons of Aaron that went and they offered a sacrifice. And the scripture just calls it unauthorized fire. And if you remember the story, uh, they became the sacrifice as a result. Uh, there's the story of a guy that made this very hasty oath that if God gave him victory in battle, he would give him, he would sacrifice to God the first thing that came from his house. And when he went from the battle, the first thing that came from his house was his daughter. You know, there's these stories. And, and on both those stories, God never asked for what these people were doing. And plus, that story about the daughter, there's never any indication God expected that guy to follow through with it. But he made these hasty, these hasty uh, ex expectations of what God would want. And they found themselves in a place of not really being where he wanted them to be. And I don't know why we do this. It's human nature, I think, we, that we want to somehow express ourselves to God. We want to express thankfulness to God. Sometimes, uh, there's, if truth be told, there's a manipulative aspect in it, the prosperity gospel, which I, I think if you've been here for a while, you know that I really think is dangerous and despicable and heretical and every other kind of itical that I can think of. Uh, very often says, well, if you give, 
to God, which usually translates, if you give to the ministry of the person who's on TV, then what God will give you in return will be greater. Either uh, more money will come back to you or good health, these kind of things. That, so the giving kind of is mixed with a, a bit of a selfish motivation in there as well. But sometimes, as human beings, we want to somehow express ourselves. And we get a little bit ahead of God sometimes. And David is a good example. In, this, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, is the story of David who wants to express his thankfulness to God. And he, and he has very mixed motivations. One is that he kind of feels guilty that he seems to be living in a nicer house than where the Ark of the Covenant was. He feels guilty, so there's that guilt aspect. And he also, just, I think, he genuinely just wants to kind of express his thankfulness because God had raised him up to this place of being the king of Israel. He had seen him through many battles. And so he wanted to express it. So let's read it. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting verse 1. It says, After the king was settled in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So notice there, Nathan doesn't go back to God, doesn't pray about this. He just assumes he's right there with David. Whatever you have in mind. Go ahead and do it, because the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, he's talking about the judges back then and the first king of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in this passage, David basically looks around and says, you know, I have this palace of cedar, a house of cedar. The covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And it wasn't just a cheap tent. It was the tent of the tabernacle, which God had given specific instructions to Moses on how to build. And on the, in the, and on the Ark of the Covenant, in case you're not aware, there's this thing. The top was called the mercy seat. 
And the idea was that the Spirit of the Lord rested on the mercy seat between the cherubim that were part of the, the ark. And he looks around, David looks around and says, well, since I have this nice house, surely I must do something for God. And Nathan, the prophet, thinks this is such an obviously good idea that he doesn't even go to God. It's just a no-brainer for him. He's like, yeah, do it. The Lord is with you. Go for it. Make this happen. And Nathan wasn't a guy that was just a yes man to, to David. If you remember during David's uh, thing with Bathsheba, it was Nathan that spoke into his life about the sin that he had been involved in. So Nathan isn't just saying this because he wants to please David. Nathan is of the same mind. Surely this is what God would want. This is clearly a no-brainer. Just go ahead and do it. But God wasn't with David in this. God's response is interesting. He essentially says to David, did I ask for this? Did I ask for this temple from you? No. Have I ever asked for a temple to be built for me from all the judges and the king before you? Judges before you, king before you? Did I ask it from Moses? Did I ask it from any of these? No. I didn't ask for it. So why do you think that I want this from you? What got into your head that you could presume that this is what I want? And then God gives this big list. He says, you're not going to give it to me. I'll give it to you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to provide a place for my people Israel. I will appoint the leaders over my people. I will also give you rest from your enemies. I will raise up the offspring to succeed you. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will give to you. I'm not asking you to give to me in the sense of what you think I want. And this is where the important point comes into all this. It's not that God doesn't want something from us. He does want something from us. But God makes it very clear what he wants from us. And yet very often we kind of go around that. And we will presume, well, God wants this me to fulfill this action. Or he wants me to do this thing. Or he wants me to, to sacrifice this part of my life. Instead of us looking at what God clearly says, this is what I want from you. We think we know better than God sometimes. It'd be like, you know that you're going on a trip, you know, say you're going to go to, to Iceland. It seems like a lot of people like to go to Iceland lately. And, and you're going to go hiking around the glaciers and the volcanoes and chase reindeer, whatever you do in Iceland. And, uh, and you, tell, you tell a friend of yours, says, I want to give you something uh, when you go on your trip. And you say, well, I'd like a nice pair of hiking boots because I'm going to be doing a lot of walking when I'm in Iceland. So... If you want to give me something, that's what I want, a pair of hiking boots. And then right before your trip, your friend shows up, and he hands you these keys, and he says, that car out there, I bought that for you, for your trip. I can't take a car to Iceland. I didn't ask for a car. I mean, yeah, a car is great, but first of all, I don't need a car. Didn't ask for it. All I asked for was a pair of boots, a nice pair of hiking boots. Why are you giving me a car? And your friend's like, but the car is worth so much more than a pair of boots. I, I'm, we're such good friends. I wanted to give you something more than just a pair of boots. And you're like, but I don't need another car. First of all, I have to find a place to park it. Now I've got to find more insurance. I don't want a car. I just wanted a pair of boots. This is kind of what we do with God. God says, this is what I want. And we go, yeah, but. This is what I want to give. And sometimes we think we're giving above what God wants, but really what he wants from us is something simple, 
But it's profound. It's deep what he wants. In the Gospels, Jesus talks often about his relationship with the Father. And in that, he begins to lead us into a place of understanding what does God want from us? What does he want and what can we give God as an expression of love? The love that, an expression of love in a way which God says, that is what I want. Well, first of all, there's several passages where Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father, but the Gospel of John is where they kind of coalesce because the Gospel of John is really all about answering the question of who Jesus is. Who is the Son? And it begins right from the start. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we're celebrating during Advent, we're celebrating the incarnation, the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. But then throughout the Gospel of John, we, Jesus says some very interesting things. He's not there as a free agent. He's not there just doing or following things that he thinks is best. Uh, for example, he says, you know, I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. So one of the things Jesus says is just the fact that he's among us, his earthly ministry, he didn't come on his own. This just wasn't his idea. He is, re, he is sent. He is acting in response to the Father. Again, he says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Again, Jesus is saying, I'm not coming up with stuff on my own. I'm not just kind of making this up as I go along. I'm only saying what the Father has given me to say. And then this is where he starts to make the connection to love and to our lives, how Jesus just does what the Father shows him, that's how he expresses his relationship with the Father. He says, if God were your Father, and he's not saying this in a manipulative way. He's just saying, now, if you want to understand how God wants, to, wants you to relate to him, it's similar to the way that I relate to him. So he says, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm now here. I have not come on my own. He sent me. So what Jesus is telling the disciples is that if they want a relationship with the Father, they need to get in line with what the Father loves. They need to get in line with the will of the Father. The Father sent the Son. If we want to love the Father, we'll love what the Father loved. We'll love the Son. If we want to know what the Father wants, we'll listen to the one who speaks directly from the Father, not on his own, but what the Father taught him. And this is how our relationship that we have, we talk about our relationship with Jesus as part of our relationship with God, because God is the very incarnation, and it becomes kind of a, a confusing thing for some people, but Jesus is that very word made flesh. He's the very character and nature of God made flesh. When we see, Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what he means by that, you've seen the very character and nature of the Father. He doesn't say he is the Father. In fact, he very clearly says He's not the Father. The Father is spirit. It must be worshiped in spirit and truth. But Jesus is that very nature of God made flesh. And if you want to know what God says, if you want to go know God's nature, if you want to know how to relate to God, then relate to Jesus. Love him. Listen to him. Do what he did. And basically, it all comes down to a relationship of trust. And we see this profoundly in Jesus. He had this relationship of trust. He trusted the Father, even when the Father was leading him into a very difficult situation of the cross. He trusted him. 
And it wasn't as though Jesus went into that cross situation thinking, well, this is going to be easy. If you remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually prayed, if it's possible, let's let this cut pass. Let's find another way to do this. But it wasn't. It had to happen that way. And so Jesus would pray, let this cut pass, but your will be done. He did that three times. And from trust comes obedience. And this is what God wants. He wants us to trust him enough that when he says go, we go because we believe that he has the best thing for us in mind. When he says do, we do it because we believe that that is the best thing for us to do in order to grow in our spiritual walk with God. We don't do it because we're trying to curry favor with God. We don't go because we're afraid if we don't, we're going to be punished. Although there is definitely the idea of punishment and wrath, which comes with disobedience. But that comes as a, as a go toward obedience when we're feeling like we don't want to. Like Jonah. You know, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted to see the Ninevites burn. So he went the other direction. He had to be kind of wrathed back to Nineveh. But what God would prefer is that we act in obedience out of love and out of trust. And this is how it expresses it. And Jesus wraps all this done up in John 14. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And this commandment and obedience, this isn't, again, this is not rule following. This is being in relationship with God and trusting him. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to them, to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, there's more than one guy named Judas within the, the band of uh, disciples there, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourselves to us and not to the world? And this is one of those funny times when Jesus seems to completely ignore the question that was asked to him. Uh, he does this a lot. The disciples will ask a question, and Jesus is like, no, that's not important. I'm going to talk about what's important. And he, goes through, he stays with what he was talking about. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Now, if you want to be cynical about this, and a lot of people in the world are cynical, they'll say he's being manipulative because they don't understand that he's talking about this relationship. He's saying, if you want to love God, this is what God wants. He doesn't want some big sacrifice where you say, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to you. He doesn't want you to go and offer an unauthorized, you know, kind of gift or sacrifice to him. He says, this is what I want. My, if follow my commands, obey them. That is how you show you love me. And then he goes on, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is a, a one of those little insights as to who is the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? We will come to him and make our home in him. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. The Father is the Spirit of Christ. This is where you start getting that Trinity idea, even though the Trinity is never said as such in the Bible, the word Trinity. You see these definitions of the Holy Spirit sprinkled through the Scriptures. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home in him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. That's how you show that you really don't love Christ. You don't obey his teaching. These words you hear, now again he says, these words you hear, they're not my own. I'm not even coming up with this on my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And so this is one of the things I think as believers, you know, we, we, I, I often have people kind of say, I want to do this thing to, to show my love for God. I want to give this amount of money to this ministry to show my love for God. I want to do this mission trip or whatever to show my love for God. And for sure, it's good to be generous and to give toward things. It's good to go on a mission trip and, and to be generous with your time and money. But we need to be careful in thinking that we're presuming that this is how 
God will receive my love. Because if we go on a mission trip or we give tons of money to some kind of uh, uh, good cause, even a cause for the sake of Christ, but then we turn around and we don't follow his basic commands of love, then we're not following in obedience. It doesn't matter how much money we've given. It doesn't matter what, what we've sacrificed of our time and money. First John, we're going to go through the, the letter of First John probably sometime early next year. You know, it says in there, you know, you can't say that you love God and hate your brother at the same time. You know, it doesn't work. And you can't say, I love God, and I'm going to do all these things, I'm going to, I'm going to follow these rituals. Some people think coming to church is an expression of love for God. Not really. The commandment that he gives us is to love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this the world will know you're my disciples, if you love one another, not how much you give to something. Now, again, not to say you should, you should not do these things, but we shouldn't be doing them thinking that somehow this is, this is what God asked for when it comes to the expression of love. What God asks for, for the expression when it comes to love, is to trust him. Trust him and walk in the place of obedience with that trust. This is why I love Micah 6.8. It's an Old Testament verse, but I just, it, for me, it's one of the, the pillar verses. I think we all kind of have a set of verses which are very much sort of our foundation. It's not that the whole scripture isn't important, but, you know, there's certain verses that really talk to you. This is one that you've heard me go back to all the time. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what is it the Lord requires of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love the simplicity of it. To do justly, to be just, to try and do the right thing. Now we're fallen people and there's sometimes we're going to try and do the right thing and we're going to end up doing the wrong thing. But the, the desire of our heart is to be just. But within that justice, there needs to be mercy. And Jesus and God himself showed that. The wages of sin is death. That's justice. The wages of sin is death. The mercy is, but the gift of God is life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the mercy. The wages of, death, of sin is being death. Well, that, that's very stark. It doesn't, there's no wiggle room there. But then he took upon himself those consequences. The consequences didn't go away, but in his mercy, he took it upon himself. And humility. Humility is that willingness to say, like Jesus is constantly saying in these verses, I'm not coming up with this on my own. I'm only doing what the Father has shown me. So what does the Father show you? What has he shown us in the scriptures that he wants us to do? It's a restful place when we understand this and when we are able to live this. And what we see happening in all these verses, and, and when you read the Bible and you see people walking in concert with God, is you'll notice that God always moves first. He's the one that initiates things. He's the one that takes the first step. You know, the story of Moses. Moses, is, Moses uh, you know, when he finds out, he's an interesting story. We went through his life a couple, several years ago now, but... Uh, you know, when he found out that he was a, a Hebrew baby, he wanted to start somehow expressing that heritage. And he ends up killing a guy who's beating another Hebrew slave. Some of you remember the story of Moses. He was considered a prince of Egypt. He sees a guy beating a Hebrew slave, and Moses murders that dude. And then he freaks out and hide, tries to hide the body, and he hightails it into the desert. Whoop! And for about, you know, a long time, he's just kind of out in the desert, and you don't really get a sense of it. He's just kind of wandering around. He gets married, 
Seems to have a pretty decent life as a, as a shepherd out there. But then one day a bush is burning, and it's a strange thing. It's, it's burning, and it's not being consumed. And as Moses draws close to it, he hears that voice telling him, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. God initiates the movement, and that's when we really start seeing the story of Moses. The story of Noah is kind of the same thing. You know, Noah, Noah is, he is trying to, to warn the people away from sin, but then God initiates. He says, Noah, what you need to do is you need to build this ark. You need to build this boat in a place that there's no logical reason to have a boat here, but I want you to build it. He initiates it, and Noah responds in obedience. You see this all throughout the scriptures. And one of the things that God has a very short temper with, when it comes, especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament and the early church, is when people presume things. When they presume this is what God wants. And I told you, when, when Aaron's sons offer a sacrifice that is unauthorized, he's very quick to put an end to that. They're consumed themselves by the fire. When a guy named Ananias following what he saw, that probably saw the, the love that the early church gave a guy named Barnabas who sold a field and gave money. Remember this story? He sells a field and he gives only part of it, but claims that he's given all of it. God doesn't have any patience for that. You presume to do this and then you lie about it. Boom. It was done. God moves first. And what he wants from us is to have enough trust in him that when he moves in our lives that we are able then to respond there in obedience because we trust him. And again, going back to First uh, John, he says, uh, this is the gospel writer now writing. And you can tell that John, the gospel writer, is the same who wrote these letters because he uses the same phrases in the gospel as well as in his letters. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So God acts first. He sends his, his son. This is love. Not that we loved God. It was not that we presumed uh, how we we're going to express ourselves to God. But that he loved us. Sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we should also, we ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. He was the initiator, not us. And during the Christmas season, this is what we celebrate. We celebrate this ultimate fulfillment of God giving first when he gave us the gift of the incarnation of Jesus Christ our Lord. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Remember, God said to David, I'm going to establish your throne and it will be forever. This is the descendant who will be the forever king. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary, Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I like how the Bible has a sense of understatement. Basically, Mary's like, what is going on? And what are you talking about? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. So Mary, God acts first. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And I should have included it here. I just thought of it now. And Mary's response to that is, may the Lord do as he sees fit. She responds to what God's saying. I'm going to do this. You're going to be with child. She responds to it by saying, I'll trust you. Even though this action put her in danger of her life and her culture at that time. To be found pregnant when you're engaged to a guy when he's not the father. He had every right to have her killed, according to that culture. That's why the, the scriptures tell us that Joseph, he didn't want to kill Mary. He, he loved her, so he was going to divorce her quietly. He's going to break the betrothal quietly until God told him, trust me, and take her as your wife. And this, this pattern of giving first as the cross approached continues, and Jesus gives his disciples a simple but profound command, and this is the one that we've been talking about. You know, the commands of Jesus aren't, if you want to know what the commands of Jesus are, this is the main one, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. As he loved us. Not as you presume that we should love, what love should look like. Because this is what we do. We presume to God what love should look like. The Old Testament commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. So then the, the, the baseline of what that should look like is yourself. It's kind of a selfish way of expressing love. This is what I like, so that must be what you like. And we know, I've told people in the marriage seminars we've been going through, that, that uh, advice, uh, do unto others as you have them do unto yourself, or to love others as you love yourself, that's good advice to get along with humanity in general. It's not great marriage advice. Because you need to know this person. You need to understand what they want in order to really love them. You can't assume, you know, because I would like to have uh, a Steam card where I can, you know, buy a video game, a computer game uh, for Christmas that that's what Cindy wants. Hey, here's what I want. You want that too, right? If I do that, I'll have a very disappointed wife and an irritated wife who would say, don't you know me better than that? And in the same way, loving others and loving God from our, ourself being the base we're going to tend to love in a way that's just kind of defined by ourselves. So Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. He is the base, not us. That's the new part of the command. Loving others is an Old Testament command. That's from the beginning. God is all about, people always say, oh, the Old Testament, God's a God of wrath and anger and all that. There is those aspects in disobedience, but he talks about loving the orphan, loving the, the alien, the immigrant, loving the people who have less God's all about loving. But Jesus says, you're not to be the base, baseline. I'm to be a baseline. And by this, all will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And if you want to know what the other things Jesus commands of us, you should read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus goes through there and says things about, about, basically about the same thing. You know, you've heard it said, you know, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. He defines, he redefines things because that's who he is. He's Christ. He's the word of God among us. So I guess when we talk about love and as we go into the season about love, we don't have anything God needs, but we have things that God wants. I think if we can get that through our head. There's nothing that you have that God needs. God is quite sufficient without us. 
but we have things that he wants. And what he wants is this relationship. What he wants is this relationship of trust that leads to obedience. He didn't ask for rituals. In fact, he only asks us to remember, the only one thing he really asks us to remember is his death. And then later on, baptism also becomes a remembrance of his death and his resurrection. He doesn't ask for any other rituals. He doesn't ask for a giving that's a grudging giving. In fact, in the New Testament, it says God loves a, a cheerful giver. The Greek word there is hilarious. It's what the English word hilarious comes from. A hilarious giver, a guy that says, woo, I'm happy to give. God's like, if this is a grudging thing, if this is, you think you're fulfilling some kind of law or obligation, I don't want that. Don't need that. He doesn't ask us to, you know, to necessarily throw off everything we're doing and go into some really difficult situation. I had a friend of mine I knew in the Peace Corps. He had left everything in the U.S. to go work in the refugee camps in uh, Sudan. It was during one of these, you know, the North and South Sudan were fighting, and he was in this miserable situation, got incredibly sick. And I asked him why to do that. He goes, because I wanted to show my devotion to God. It's like, well, did God ask you to do that? Well, why wouldn't he want me to do it? It just kind of didn't make sense. It's not that it's a bad thing, but did he ask you to do that? Is that how you show your love to him? Or does he want you to relate in a different kind of way? So as we consider our lives as this year draws to an end, you know, I know that we all want to walk more closely with God. At least most of us do. We want to walk more closely with God. And we often are trying to think of how, what can I do? What can I give? How can I sacrifice? What, what can I change in my life? What do I have that God needs that I could give to him? And I want to tell you, you have nothing God needs, but you do have something he wants. And that's your trust. A trust that then leads to obedience. And to trust in that obedience, you'll follow his commands. And you'll find when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find basically what's in this here. His main command is to love one another. As he loved us, as he defined it, not as you define it. And if you do that, then you'll find yourself in that place where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And those of you who obey my commands, my Father will love. And we will come and make our dwelling within you. And you will be closer to your God as you do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who moves first. And there's so many passages of Scripture that remind us of that. You know, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You moved first. We love because you first loved us. You moved first. And Lord, we thank you that we are in a position in our lives that we know you and that we have trusted you for our salvation, at least many of us have. But Lord, I want to pray for those that may be hearing this and they're still trying to figure out what can they do to earn their salvation. What's that thing they can do that will earn your love? And may they understand you've already taken care of that through Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection there's nothing more we need to do but to trust in you and trust in that action and follow you in that. Accept, we call it accepting you. And if there's someone here today that is desperately wanting to be in relationship with you, then 
trying to find what that thing is they can do to show you that they love you. And throughout history, people have done some crazy things. Even they've starved themselves. They've done all kinds of stuff. Lord, pray that you would just show them what you want is to trust in what you've already done. And for those of us who have been believers for a while, Lord, we still fall into this trap. And Lord, I pray you'd guide us all in just doing what you put right in front of us. Love one another as I have loved you. Because that in itself is no easy task. To love through disappointment, to love through anger, to love through times of feeling betrayed. So help us just to do what you want us to do. To love in the way you define love. As we walk in trust and obedience. And help us to share with the world around us that is cynical about this idea. That they, they see obedience to God as some kind of makes you something less of a human. Maybe share with them and show them in our lives that it makes us more human because we are closer to what your ideal for us was. And in this, may we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.